Welcome to the Pathfinders podcast by VWS. I'm your host, Jenny Stojkovich. Join me in intimate conversations with some of the world's most incredible women leaders in the future of food, fashion, beauty, and technology. We'll dive into their stories, how they built their companies, and how they've dedicated their lives to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Join us on our journey as we endeavor into this brave new future. You won't believe what's coming next. Hello, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us again this week for Pathfinders. I'm Jenny Stoikovic, the founder of VWS. I am here with Aki Kaltenbach, who is the CEO and founder of Saved Us Seafoods. How's it going, Aki? Yeah, it's going really well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, so exciting. And you have such a beautiful backdrop for anybody that can see this on video. <laughs> Aki is joining from, I swear, one of the most beautiful places in the world. You want to tell everyone where Save to Seafoods is located? Yeah, we're based in a place called Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. And yes, it is very beautiful. Awesome. So uh, do you mind telling everyone just a little bit about Save to Sea and what you've been building over there in British Columbia? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm founder CEO of Save the Sea Foods. We are a plant-based seafood company. Our first product to market is a vegan smoked salmon made from carrots, and we make it ourselves right here in Victoria. Yeah, we're early stage. We're in 40 retailers across British Columbia, including retailers like Choices and Nesters. And we just received confirmation that we'll be listed in all Whole Foods across BC in early next year. Oh, Whole Foods. Is that the big one? Is that the one that everybody's kind of looking for? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah, that's definitely the big name that everybody looks to get into. So super excited about that, that news. Awesome. Okay. So I would love to start our conversation today, learning a little bit about your background as an entrepreneur, as a founder. Uh, one of the things that's super exciting about the women we work with at VWS is everybody comes from a completely different background. There's always such an interesting story. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what was life like growing up? Did you start off in BC? Has that been home? Yeah. So I was born in Vancouver in BC, but did spend a little bit of time on Vancouver Island as well. So yeah, BC born and bred. <laughs> okay. So for those that aren't familiar with BC, it is essentially the California of Canada, I think. What was it like there? It's definitely the hippie community, I would say, for those that want to go out west and, and escape the hustle. Yeah, definitely. Although Vancouver is becoming more and more of a, next to Toronto is definitely the next biggest city in Canada. But when I was growing up there, you know, it was much smaller. And yeah, I guess the people that were attracted to move there, you know, lots of draft dodgers. <laughs> it definitely has some hippie vibes, <laughs> for sure. Especially when you get out to some of the more the island communities, Victoria included, you know, I don't know if people who live in Victoria would agree with me. But yeah, there's lots of people seeking an alternative lifestyle living here. So does that mean there's a lot of vegans? Was, were vegans, vegetarians? Was that a big community growing up? I'm not so sure growing up. I became plant-based when in 2017. So I'm still relatively new to the movement. 
But I will say this, BC has the highest populations of vegetarians and vegans in the country. Oh, interesting. Okay. So even more highly dense, you know, Toronto type areas where you would expect a lot of millennials to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. BC is definitely leading the pack. So you're born, raised in, in BC. What was school like for you? Were you interested in entrepreneurship? Were you interested in food or is this completely new? Well, so I come from a family of entrepreneurs and I come from the restaurant industry. So my parents had restaurant my whole life growing up, mom and pop, my dad or was a chef, they're retired now. And my mom worked in the front of house, they owned a restaurant. You know, my earliest memories are of me in the back of the kitchen, slicing beans, you know, because my dad served so many beans. So and yeah, <laughs> I would spend hours back there, you know, sneaking dark chocolate from the dark chocolate bar. And yeah, so my life was spent in, in the back of a restaurant, really. <laughs> And I worked in restaurants oh. a lot of my life. And prior to starting Save the Seafoods, was running my aunt and uncle's Japanese restaurants in Whistler in Canada. So food's just always been a part of your life for as long as you can remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, what do you think was the, the best lesson you took from growing up in, in the back of house? So... You know, even though I my earliest memories are in the back of house, my experience working in restaurants has always been in front of house. So whether it's been serving or managing or running restaurants, but I think one of the key things that shows up wherever I end up is customer service. Obviously, you know, being in restaurants, customer service is key. It's how you differentiate yourself from any other restaurant. And, you know, your Yelp is your, <laughs> you know, your friend and your enemy. And, you know, you're so reliant on customers leaving good reviews and spreading the word about your business. And that's definitely been an important part that I've brought to Save the Seafoods. Every customer, whether it's a Whole Foods or whether it's, you know, your local bodega down the street, they are equally important. And, you know, we really go above and beyond to get our product into their hands. So what was it like before and after Yelp? I'm super curious if you've been in the restaurant industry your whole life. Did that change everything? I mean, yes and no. You know, I think there's horror stories for sure. And, you know, no matter how hard you try to please a customer, you're always going to get unhappy customers. And I, you hear a lot of restaurants, you know, their biggest complaint is these customers that, you know, just want to give you a bad review or maybe competitors pretending to be customers. But to be honest, overall, provided you have a good product and you really do your best to give a good experience, those voices will drown out the bad apples. Let's say that. So we've definitely had our share of, you know, unfair reviews, but overall the five stars overwhelmingly drown out, you know, not so nice. <laughs> that is what I hear. So you are now, let's say we're in high school at this point and you've been working in front of house, back of house in the restaurant industry. You probably did not envision yourself getting into food once you went to university or college. No, yeah, <laughs> spot on. I actually remember telling my parents that I never wanted to work in the restaurant industry. And just, and mainly because they work, like I said, they're retired now. They worked so hard. My dad, you know, I didn't see my dad a lot growing up. He was in the kitchen from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m every day, seven days a week. And so, you know, I would be sleeping by the time he got home. And, I, you know, I just, it seems so hard. So I 
went to university, I studied business, and then I moved to London and worked in advertising, probably <laughs> the furthest thing, you know, a massive advertising agency with thousands of people. And yeah, I lived, I worked in that industry for six years. I was not expecting a London pivot. So we're talking London, England here. <laughs> yes. At that time, I was, you know, whether it was, it was either New York or London, if you wanted to work in the advertising industry. And so, you know, wanting to live abroad, I chose London. And what do you think that meant to you? Was that in the cards for you? Um, yeah. You always wanted to go abroad? Uh, I always wanted to go abroad for sure. And I did know I wanted to work in advertising. I really was drawn by that particular industry and, and marketing and, yeah. And some other things played into that. I'm half Japanese and half German. So I have a, a German passport. So it made working in the EU, you know, a little bit easier. Yeah. And not so daunting, I guess. It's interesting being from Canada as well myself. You just have such a different world when you get outside of Canada, particularly the business environment. Canada is such a small country in comparison to some of these other big leading, you know, your New Yorks, your Londons, your San Francisco's, LA, whatever it is. It is just wild when you are almost like a big fish in a little pond and then you can go out to some of these bigger environments. Did you have that kind of shock? Because I know I certainly did. No, absolutely. I think, you know, living in Vancouver and even though it is because becoming more of a metropolis. It wasn't when I was growing there. And, you know, you read magazines and the magazines never talked about your city, right? You know, the celebrities, the restaurants, they were all in London or New York or, you know, other major cities. And so when living in London and reading about the place that you live, that you could access those places and, you know, sometimes run into those people was very exciting <laughs> for me. Do you remember that moment where you went, oh my gosh, like this is the dream. This is what I always wanted when I was younger. And I thought about being in one of these dazzling cities. I'm having that moment right now. Yeah, I'm not sure it was one exact moment. There were just definitely many moments though, where I would pinch myself and, you know, especially working in advertising at that time. And, you know, I haven't been in the industry for a long time, but you know, we would, I worked on Procter and Gamble and so they were based in Geneva. And so we would fly over to Geneva, you know, every other week and, and go on ski trips. And so things like that were so glamorous of, you know, obviously, I mean, I wish I could do that today. <laughs> so those types of experiences were definitely ones that, you know, I had not had in Canada living in Vancouver uh, or on Vancouver Island. So they were definitely special and I have great memories living and working there for sure. I think you've got Whistler, right? That's your Geneva in BC. I think a lot of people fly over. Oh, 100%. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And Whistler is, you know, it's been named the number one ski resort in North America, you know, many years in a row. So I am not complaining about our access to ski resorts. <laughs> Okay, so we have a lot of people that join from all across the world, particularly tons and tons of folks from the EU. Do you want to throw the gauntlet down and say where the best skiing is? Oh my goodness. I don't know if I want to get into that. <laughs> Whistler is like, you know, my family have businesses there. I've skied there for many years. So I'm not sure anything can really compete to be totally honest. Okay. All right. Well, everybody has heard it. The Swiss Alps ain't got nothing on the Canadian Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, we're jet setting all around Europe. And then at some point, Aki decides we're going back home. Why did you decide to come back to Canada? And how did things start to pivot towards founding your company? 
Yeah. So I had worked in advertising for a few years and, you know, as glamorous and as much as I learned in that experience, I knew in my heart of hearts that I wanted to start my own business one day. And doing that in London, of course it's possible, but my family and my aunt and uncle had their restaurants in Whistler. And at the same time, the Olympics was just about to happen in Whistler in Vancouver. And so it seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up. So I moved back to Whistler to run my family's restaurants during the Winter Olympics, which was, you know, that is what put Vancouver and Whistler on the map for a lot of international folks. I had never experienced an Olympics for this, a summer or a winter, and it is incomparable to any other events. It is just so much fun. And the people that come from all over the world to see these incredible athletes, it it really was a once in a lifetime experience. So I'm so glad that I took that opportunity to work during that period. What did a day look like? Okay, so let's say we're in the middle of the Olympics. What was a typical day like for you? It must have been very long. (laughs) Long. And what I loved about it was, so obviously the demand during those two weeks is insane because you have, you know, with specifically the population there is 10,000, but it can accommodate up to 60,000. So we're at max, max capacity those two weeks. And don't forget people are coming up by the Vancouver, by the bus load every day. And so it was All about every efficiency mattered in order to maximize the revenue that you could generate in one day. So, you know, it was just being very particular, having a good team in place that uh, that cared and knew your product. And yeah, just being able to get bums and seats as quickly as possible. There must have just been so much tremendous like hometown pride just to have the whole world stage in your home. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the the, the people that also came through, you know, there were so many, again, you know, celebrity moments that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that this person is in our restaurant, you know, and you're trying to be cool and not, you know, I feel like Canadians have this um, reputation of being very polite and, you know, not so brash or I don't know. So anyways, just, you know, being conscientious of these people's privacy and all of that. It was so much fun. Did you have a moment where you broke? Was there just like that person that you just had to come say hi to? Well, I'm totally going to brag here, but Biden and his wife did come in for lunch one day and I couldn't help but ask him for a photo. So (laughs) you have a photo with the future president of the United States. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I bet you, you did not think you could (laughs) slip that into today's talk. I was not planning on it, I promise. <laughs> okay, so in the show notes, everybody, Aki is going to, of course, send me this photo where I bet using ear to ear, like 12 inch grin across her face. Okay, what was everybody's favorite Biden and her husband like? I'm so incredibly, and to be fair, the moment, you know, it was a photo and then we let them have lunch. I did not, you know, join in on lunch or anything like that, but they were so lovely. And, you know, he was incredibly generous to be kind enough to let us take a photo. <laughs> So that was the extent of our interaction. Good tipper? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Okay. All right, everybody. You heard it here. We have a good tipper going into the White House. Good things to come for the restaurant industry, I think. (laughs) Yes. You know, they say uh, never meet your heroes because so often these stories do not turn into the happy moment that that you're talking about. But I think that you really had a unique experience, particularly in the middle of this like world changing Olympic event. And then 
you know, vice president of the United States. Casual. Totally. <laughs> okay. So casual. It's <laughs> like, let's act normal here. Everybody just, you know, get some sushi made, like, you know, make sure that we don't mess anything up. And uh, we'll pretend like this is a regular day in Whistler, our town of 10,000 people. And <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Totally. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Anyways, I, I won't go on. But Whistler does get its share of celebs for sure. So yeah, but that was definitely a life highlight for me. <laughs> Everything just goes really downhill from there. <laughs> no, so far, so far. Wait till we, well, we have other founders we've spoken to that have got their products in Michelle Obama, yes. you know, so yes, That's we true. will see. We got to get this vegan salmon out there. Okay. So we've got Biden out of the way. We've got the amazing European jet setting life out of the way. So now- You've decided at some point, I am going to build something. What was that decision like? Why did you decide to go out on your own and build something totally new, particularly for those that are listening? BC does have quite a few of the plant-based companies that are located there already. So a lot of foods that you eat on a daily basis, you might not even realize are produced in BC. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that environment as well, Aki. Yeah, I mean, that is so true. There are so many, I stand on the shoulder of giants. There are so many incredible plant-based companies that have been started and since acquired and so on. So there's expertise in, in BC that, you know, I'm definitely going to need to draw on and have been drawing on as we grow. Companies like Gardein, which is early, early plant-based, you know, I eat their fish fillets on <laughs> weekly basis for my fish tacos. Uh, Dea, who I'm sure everybody knows, was an early entrant into the plant-based cheese market and was acquired by a Japanese pharmaceutical company for 400 million, you know, two or three years ago. And then most recently, The Very Good Butcher, which was also based in Victoria, plant-based meat company made from simple ingredients. And they are the second plant-based meat company in the world to go public. So in some incredible companies that we get to follow in their footsteps. And they're kind of laying the path for us. And you also settled, I think, a little bit of a debate in the vegan world of, is it Daya or Daya? It's Daya. And I know this because <laughs> one of my investors is the co-founder. Okay. So how did you decide to join the ranks of Daya and Gardein. Where did this idea come from and how did you get started? Yeah. So I was running my family's Japanese restaurants in Whistler and I went plant-based myself in 2017. And, you know, being plant-based, I wanted to be able to serve at this time as well. I would say over half our staff was also vegan. And, you know, Whistler is a very young demographic. And this isn't a stat, but let's say over half the population is under 30. And definitely our staff were, you know, even younger than that, under 25. And so, you know, it was obvious that this was is not a fad. This was, you know, trend that is here to stay and growing. So I was looking for plant-based products to serve to our customers. And at that time, there was virtually nothing. I remember the restaurant industry uses suppliers like GFS and Cisco. And I was talking to my supplier from GFS and asked him, you know, and these guys have hundreds of thousands of products. And I'm like, oh, can you send me like what plant-based products do you offer? And they only had one product, one plant-based product, and it was Daya cheese slices. It was literally the only thing they had. This is like, you know, a massive company. And it, it just blew my mind. So 
You know, and at the same time, because this is not that long ago, you were seeing the rise of Beyond and Impossible. So there weren't even those products available through our distributor, but never mind plant based seafood products. And obviously, as a Japanese restaurant, we serve a lot of、uh, raw fish and sushi. So I had experience. I had launched a vegan ramen at our restaurant, and we had like lots of other kind of plant based dishes. So I just started developing products myself. And one of the products was a, the, our vegan smoked salmon that is in market. Today and I found a food scientist. You know, even though I had experience developing dishes for you know serving to customers, I didn't have the experience of bringing something to shelf. So I hired a food scientist, and together she helped me bring my, our first product to market. Is your food scientist your co-founder? No, I don't have a co-founder. The food scientist I worked with originally is not the food scientist we have on our team today, and it's more just a, a function of geography, really. That makes sense. I think it would be really helpful to know why did you decide to go out as a solo founder. It's somewhat rare to find、um, women solo founders, and curious to know why you made that decision and what some of the pros and cons have been. Yeah, it wasn't so much that I. More than anything, I haven't been able to find that perfect fit. It's like a marriage, right? <laughs> I just haven't found my partner yet. And I say yet because I have no doubt that you know, and it may not be a co-founder. It may be a more senior COO or somebody that I bring on to help grow and scale the company that has been there, done that. But in this initial kind of starting of the company, there wasn't anybody obvious to bring on. And you know, instead of spending time finding that person, I figured I'd just spend it growing the company, and organically we'll find somebody to help to jump on board and help us grow. We did a survey over the summer where we spoke to 160 women founders in the plant and cell based space, and many of them felt the need to not only get a co-founder to be able to raise money and go out there and build this company, but many felt that they needed to have a male co-founder. Oh, interesting. I have not found that. So I just, in terms of fundraising, and don't get me wrong, that question has come up. You know, are you going to be able to do this on your own? Not so much. I mean, maybe they thought it. Not so much about being a woman. I will say this: in fundraising, I did face some pushback, and this came from male investors, not female investors, because I am also a mom. I have an eighteen-month-old, and I did get pushback on whether I would be able. To scale a company while also being a mom of a young toddler at the same time, you know, I'm not going to lie. That definitely came up in conversations with investors. How did you handle that?、Um, I mean, to me, that's just a red flag. <laughs> I don't want an investor that doesn't believe that I'm competent enough to have a company and a family at the same time. There are gazillions of examples of women and men who do this, and so to me, you know, politely thank them for their time and move on. Hey everyone, it's Jenny. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. If you are, would you mind doing me a favor? Please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Today's podcast is sponsored by LeapGrow. LeapGrow is a group of freelance premium growth marketers. We take ownership over your conversion funnel, product positioning, growth targets, paid channels, and strategy. We only work with a small number of companies we feel personally invested in. It sounds weird, but actually caring about our clients and stopping at nothing to drive their success is what makes us unique. To learn more about LeapGrow, go to leapgrow.co. It is so unfortunate that you are far from the first founder we've spoken to that has had that specific bias of being a mother, and it is just so unfortunate 
that investors could still have that kind of mindset in 2020. You don't think that you would hear these kinds of questions. And yet time and time again, conversations like this unearth these thoughts that still seem to linger. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice for other mom founders and how they can deal with these types of topics and anything that you've kind of done to create that armor for yourself? Um, I guess luckily there are, for every investor that doesn't feel it's possible, there are 50 that know it's possible and wouldn't don't even consider that a, a con or a bad thing. So it's just another criteria, I guess. You know, that just made me realize that in future conversations with investors, that is not something I should hide, but that I should talk about to make sure that they have the same values and views that I do. So yeah, just be proud and courageous and just know that there are more people that are supportive of this point of view. And I can speak to many examples, but one investor group I have on my cap table is a group of, they're called Women's Equity Lab. And they are a group of 25 women investors based in Vancouver. And together they evaluate deals and make small investments as a group. And I remember when I pitched to them, everybody kind of went around the table and introduced themselves. And they all started with the uh, name and ages of their children. And not everybody had children, but those that did. And I thought that was so beautiful. And it made space for, you know, because I'm so proud to be a mom. That's my greatest accomplishment in life, you know, by any stretch is my son hero, you know, he's my world. So of course, he's played such an important part, you know, yes, I'm the CEO and founder of this company, but I don't see the two as, as so separate, you know, he's such a big part of my life. And so to leave him out of those conversations seems so counterintuitive. Do you specifically seek out women investors now? Do you think you've maybe consciously or unconsciously done that? Maybe unconsciously. I definitely, my cap table is, if it's not 50-50, it's just over. I have a lot of women investors on my cap table. And yeah, maybe it wasn't so intentional, but I think it's important for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is totally in line with what we had in our survey results. So many women that we spoke to said, you know, they had investors that when they had a woman in the fund, the women were helping them while they were pregnant, they would go out and help them fundraise, they would just provide a level of support that they did not typically get from non women investors, unfortunately. Yeah, I would say that that's been my experience as well. Definitely a lot of the female investors I have on my cap table are have become far more involved than maybe some of my other investors have. Do you think that that's because women are more mission aligned? Huh? I don't know. I mean, I hate making blanket statements, but I will say this particularly more about the plant-based space. Definitely raising money in the plant-based space has been, you know, because fundraising sucks, you know, I don't think anybody would deny that. But what's been such a pleasant surprise in the process is the number of investors I've spoken to, and this has been men and women, who are just as committed to the mission of, you know, reducing the our intake of animal proteins and our impact on the environment as it is about building a big ass company and making a lot of money. You know the two are go hand in hand. And so that's been really great obviously because that's why we're doing this. Like why bother otherwise? Yeah. It's good business to do good. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to know, do you remember your very first pitch that you ever made to an investor and how did it go? 
Oh man. So I have pitched probably over a hundred times now. And so I'm trying to remember. Oh, I do remember my first pitch. Okay. So my first pitch was actually to, uh, there's a group in Vancouver called Forum for Women Entrepreneurs. And they do an event every year called Pitch for the Purse. And the prize is $25,000. And I made it into the finals. And so that was actually my first pitch. And it was to a panel of, you know, seasoned investors. And I must admit, it actually went really well. I wish all my pitches went that well because they didn't. But that pitch went very well. And it actually led to my very first investment, my first check. So yeah, that was... (laughs) It's a great experience. All right. So first one out of the gate and you nailed it. You got literally investment (laughs) with your very first pitch. Yeah. And I remember being like, this is so easy. I don't know why everybody talks about fundraising being so hard. And uh, to be fair, it took six months to get my next check. So (laughs) that was just, you know, luck. (laughs) Every now and then. My husband and I had this joke, you know, whenever something fortuitous like that happens or, you know, we get a good parking spot or something, we always just say, vegan karma, vegan karma. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That was vegan karma, I guess. Took a while to get more (laughs) karma, but... Well, you got to like rebank it, right? Right, right, right. The refill is kind of, you know, like a video game, like Zelda or something like that. Got it. Okay. I didn't realize that. (laughs) Okay. So do you remember the very first time you ever saw Save to Seafoods written out in some format where you went, whoa, this is the real deal. I am a real founder. This isn't a joke anymore. Yeah. So I guess for me, the realization that it was a real thing, because so Save the Seafoods, as you can probably guess from the story that I've told you, it wasn't like I was running my family's restaurants and then I was the founder CEO of a company. Save the Seafoods was a side hustle for a while, you know, over a year while I developed the product you know, then had, you know, prototypes. I tested the prototypes in our restaurant. All this while, I'm still managing my family's restaurants. And so I would say Save the Seafoods didn't feel like a real deal. And also, sorry, not paying myself. So I would say the first time I realized it was really my first paycheck when I officially quit my role as manager of these Japanese restaurants and received my first paycheck. Then I was like, okay, this is a thing. This is a business, hopefully a viable business that supports me and my family. This is all I do. So if I'm doing my math right, that was around 2018? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And the little one is, so you must've been pregnant at this time or pretty close to it. Yes, I was pregnant and we launched our, so even though we had prototypes and I was testing them in the restaurant, We didn't get our first customer until 2019. And our first customer was actually the Very Good Butcher. And I remember, so this is a really clear memory um, for obvious reasons. I was just about to give birth. I was due that week and I delivered my first batch of product to the Very Good Butchers, what ended up being a couple days before I gave birth. And while I was going to the hospital to give birth, it was kind of a scheduled thing. Very Good Butcher emailed me for another order. And so I remember I just had to, you know, I emailed the back and they knew I was pregnant and due, it's, you know, it wasn't a secret. It's like, hey, I'm just about to give birth, but, you know, just give me a few days and I'll, I should be able to get you your next batch kind of next week. So <laughs> they ran out so quickly. I wasn't expecting, it ran out in like two days, which, you know, I was anticipating that order to last at least a couple of weeks. So that's, <laughs> so you literally delivered your first product and delivered a baby in the same week. Yes, exactly. Yep. That sounds like a woman founder. Like there is nothing that's going to stop you. 
That is, that's incredible. I love the fact that you have just made being a mother such an integral part of your identity, you know, save to see. I'm sure a lot of your inspiration of why you want to save the seas is with your son, right? You must draw so much from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think about that a lot. Of course, there's the piece about wanting to leave it better than you found it and creating a world that our children and our children's children can, you know, enjoy as we enjoyed. But there's also the piece about how do you want to show up for your children? What kind of mom do I want to be? And there are so many ways to be, but I have decided that I want to be an entrepreneur and hopefully inspire my children to, you know, be entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial or, or, you know, whatever that may mean to them. But yeah, Save the Seafoods will be an important part of his life too. So you're expecting probably for him to grow up intertwined with the business, much like your childhood was. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm so grateful to my parents. You know, they instilled such hard work ethic in me. I saw them work so hard to be able to give me everything that I was able to, you know, growing up to give me the experiences I had. So I want to be able to provide the same opportunities to my son, but also make him understand that it comes with hard work and, you know, nothing is for free and, you know, manners, polite, I don't know, all the things that you think about. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I think of all the founders we've spoken to, you are the first one to add and manners and being polite. And that is just, (laughs) girl, that's got to be the most Canadian thing that we have heard. (laughs) Really? It's so funny. He's in daycare and the caregivers there were complaining that he doesn't say please. And I was horrified. I was like, oh my God, I never thought to teach him how to say please. So I'm like all about please and thank you right now. That is so funny. I would love to know what is the biggest mistake you have made so far in Save to See, whether it's how easy and finding investors was going to be or something else? And then how did you solve it? And what did you learn? Oh, oh my God, I guess there's just been so many mistakes. So (laughs) choosing just one, you know, I think that and this actually came from one of my US investors, I don't know if this is a, a woman thing, but I definitely know that when I went to pitch, so you know, I said I've pitched over 100 times. But most of the pitches that I've done have been to Canadian investors. And I remember pitching or preparing to pitch to a US audience for my first time. It was actually Glasswell Syndicate. I was going over with one of my deal leader, Heather from Alwyn. I'm sure she won't mind that I mentioned her name. And you know, I, I gave my pitch. And she was just like, oh, how am I supposed to get excited about your company? You know, I was so downplaying everything we were going to do. My growth was really conservative. You know, my vision was super conservative. You know, if I wanted to raise any a decent amount or any money, you know, I needed to, to inspire my audience and be much bigger than I was projecting myself to be. So, you know, so I had to go back to the drawing table. I had to really rethink our our projections and our goals. And, but not only that also kind of convey, you know, I believed in my company and I wasn't projecting that. Yeah. It took a lot of coaching and sort of thinking about how I I wanted to present Save the Seafood. So that was a big learning for me is, and now I, that bold vision. I don't just use it on US. It's not like I only use it on US investors, Like I project it everywhere. And I think it served me really well and helped me close my pre-seed raise. So two questions, actually. The first one I'm going to ask is, do you think that other founders also have that same issue, especially women founders, where they're just way too conservative 
with their ideas, with their projections, their, you know, their sales? I do think so. Yeah. And I do, you know, I, I think part of it's kind of this imposter syndrome that, you know, we all feel sometimes. And yes, I've definitely, when talking to fellow female entrepreneurs, they do tend to be, yeah, just a little bit much more conservative. And I say brag because, you know, brag kind of has like a negative connotation, but to be bold, to talk about all the things that they have done and can will do, you know, we're just, you know, we talk a lot in we's, even though I say we all the time, it's just me. I don't have any co-founders, but I do have a team, right? And that team is so critical to our success. So just, you know, taking credit for things, I'm definitely not so good at, you know, I don't like to be center stage. I like to share it with others. So yeah, that all plays into this. And that's exactly in line with every single thing that we've also found with our founder conversations is that women tend to just be much more conservative because just typically speaking in society, I think the upbringing around the gender norms is for women to just be, you know, a little bit more prim and proper and just a little bit more humble than some of these male counterparts, particularly if you hear some of the pitches, the early pitches for some of these big guys out there in the plant-based space now, oh my God, like we're going to change the world. I mean, we won't have a product for eight years, but no, definitely hundred million bucks. That's what I'm looking for. No, totally. <laughs> so my follow-up question to that is, and this is one that I would just, I would love for you to provide some insight on, because I think this is something unique about being a Canadian founder is, have you found that investors are different in different countries? You know, how have you navigated those nuances and what advice would you have for founders that are maybe from a smaller country and they're not in a big US market or a big England or, or somewhere like that and how they can break out? into other countries? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great question. You know, we're based in Canada. Canada, I love sharing this stat. Canada has the same population as California. So we're a big country, but we're also very small. And in some ways, you know, COVID has been so tough on so many businesses and entrepreneurs, but the silver lining with COVID in my experience has been, it has allowed me to access investors that I would never would have had access to. And so one perfect example is Expo West. I was supposed to go there earlier this year and it got canceled, but they had a plant-based investor summit where, you know, you got to access, you know, the biggest investors in the plant-based space all from the comfort of your own home. And, you know, there were entrepreneurs from all over the world presenting to these people. And from that, I was then able to get other calls with other investors. And, you know, I think 75% of my invest, because most of the money I raised was after COVID, 75% of the money I raised, I had never met the investor in real life. We had only had video calls. And I just don't know if that would have been possible pre-COVID. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been. So I guess that's what I would say to people who aren't in the U.S. You know, I do think that investors are, are far more open to meeting with you. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in real life just because of the experience we've had. People have been making investments just meeting the entrepreneur over Zoom. 
And do those tend to be folks that are either food tech focused or women led company focused, or maybe just plant-based focused, anything in particular? I would say it was in all of the above. Definitely have people in the experts in the plant-based space and investors in the plant-based space definitely have female investors, but also have uh, a lot of investors in, in our area in and around Vancouver. I do think that that is one of the advantages that one can have in the, you know, big fish, little pond scenario is that there is so much incentive at a government level, typically, or even in smaller economy at a city level to grow this economy and support and nurture their entrepreneurs in a way that perhaps you don't have when you're out there in a 330 million person country like the United States, there really could be some advantages as well. Yeah. And I will say being in Canada, we're really lucky. There's a lot of government support and government money for startups and entrepreneurs and women entrepreneurs. And so we're definitely taking advantage of some of the fun, especially when you're doing stuff around like R&D and innovation, whether it's around food or software or anything. So yeah, I feel really lucky to be able to access some of that funding as well. Yeah, we had a similar conversation with Les Carls from Midday Squares, where she actually was able to receive government funding to help build her plant out, which just sounds... Yes. Some of the support that you can get from some of these countries sounds totally foreign to those that are in other bigger countries. And they go, wow, I really wish my government would do that. Probably similar for the COVID support as well. Yes, that's true. And there were, there are definitely some COVID loans that we took advantage of to help support with wage subsidies and rent subsidies and stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I think the the moral of the story here is that it does not matter where you are located when you're creating these plant-based options, because it's a growing community. It's a growing community everywhere. There's no country that you'll go to where the vegan or flexitarian population is decreasing. It's a simple reality that it's increasing all around the world. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, you know, I was so impressed by the breadth of countries represented at the Vegan Women's Summit. I mean, there you have it, you know, an example of the how broad this move or how dispersed this movement is. Yeah, I think one of the things that's so important, particularly for people that are interested in sustainability and the environmental aspect of it is that we can't just have all the heavy lifting in certain places. This is something that we need to come together globally to work on. And so it really behooves investors in particular to ensure that we're creating these plant-based options all around the world. That's the kind of, that's how we create that rising tide. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So what's next for Save to Seafoods? Can you give us like a little sneak peek? Yeah, absolutely. So we just closed our pre-seed raise. And so hiring, you know, we're looking for a director of operations. We are looking for food scientists. We currently produce our product ourselves, but we are planning on shifting production to a co-manufacturer. You know, there is definitely a debate you know, do you produce it yourself and build a facility and, or do you go the co-manufacturer route? We're going the co-manufacturer route. We, you know, part of it's like, it's actually possible with the process, but it also will allow us to access the U S faster than if we try to do it ourselves. So that's our strategy. And then once we secure that relationship, it's, you know, West coast of the U S here we come. Okay. So Californians, Oregonians, Washingtoners. Okay. California is our first, yeah, our target. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm, that's kind of interesting that you're able to use a co-packer given that there really isn't anything like your product on the market. Yeah. It's, you know, I say that it's possible. It's not easy. It is, you know, the, our product is so 
innovative. And I, when I say, you know, all plant-based products are so innovative, you know, you've got companies that are used to processing meat. There's lots of meat processors in, you know, because Alberta is a big you know, beef producer and seafood as well. Lots of seafood packers, but not so much plant-based seafood or no plant-based seafood. So the co-manufacturers we've been approaching, you know, have been varied in their expertise, but it's possible. Let's just say that, but you know, it's not easy. Yeah. Well, I would love to end this on a question that I like to ask all of our founders. So for those that are joining today and they are not perhaps vegan yet, or or maybe they're trying to figure out what's the big thing about plant-based, why should I care? I'd love to hear your pitch to the that crowd in particular, and then what your pitch would be specifically to vegans. Um, about the product specifically? Yeah, about what you're doing at Save the Seafood. Yeah. So our target is not vegans. It's flexitarians, people who want to reduce their intake of animal proteins, whether it's for humane reasons, whether it's for environmental reasons, whether it's for health reasons, you know, there's lots of stats around, you know, how our oceans will be depleted by the year 2048. But there are so many health reasons. I think there's this myth around seafood being good for us. So you hear a lot of people, I don't eat red meat, but I still eat seafood. But the reality is, is seafood is not that good for you. It's, you know, high in saturated fats, omega-3s. You can get that from plants, flaxseed, chia seeds. They have just as much omega-3s as a filet of salmon. But also, this is the one thing that motivates me the most. 50% of smoked salmon is farmed. And farmed salmon are having such an impact on our wild salmon stocks. You know, they're often bred in areas where wild salmon are living and and are, you know, rampant with the disease. You know, they're raised in pens full of bacteria and feces. And so why would you want to eat this? Like it's disgusting. It is disgusting. So, yeah. So I guess I would, you know, ask people to really think about what it is that they're consuming, not only from a humane perspective, but from a health perspective. Yeah. So that's actually a good point. I think a lot of people have never seen a fish factory farm. Yeah, we have lots of them on the coast of BC and they are ravaging our wild salmon stocks. It's quite sad that, you know, salmon, a keystone species, wild salmon may not exist one day or likely won't exist in large part because of fish farming practices. Well, unfortunately, that is the circumstance we're facing with so many animals right now. But we have so much innovation on the horizon. I think if there's one thing that 2020 has taught us, it's that when you put the world's best brains together with something that they just have to solve, they can solve it. And they can solve it in record-breaking time. (laughs) I think we just need to really put our finger on the pulse to get people all aligned with the fact that we need to figure out what we're doing with the ocean. We need to figure out what we are doing with climate change, with the, I am typically in California. I'm not in California right now, but I can say that when I moved there, there was not a wildfire season that lasted months and months and months and months. There was maybe one or two. Yeah. So I really, really appreciate what you're doing and it was wonderful to talk to you. And I look forward to seeing what you guys come out with next and being able to buy it in California, hopefully. Yes, absolutely. Coming to you soon. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Aki. And we will talk again soon. Thank you. Bye. 
Thanks for joining us for today's Pathfinders podcast. I hope you'll rate and subscribe to follow more conversations like today. If you want to learn more about how to get involved with VWS, please check out veganwomensummit.com or follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram with at veganwomensummit and on Twitter with at vegwomensummit. Don't worry, you can find the links in the show notes. We're building a global community of women dedicated to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Powered by CEOs, investors, celebrities, Olympians, and more, our events and media platform reaches thousands of women every day across six continents. We'd love your support. You can reach out to sponsor this podcast and more at veganwomensummit.com slash sponsors. See you next time.